Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas, you're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 78 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Staten. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and joining us actually in the studio is uh, Hunter Atkins, a man of many talents. But uh, we actually have a packed show on deck today. We've got John McLean, the general from the Houston Chronicle, joining us for what, the seventh or eighth time on the podcast. We're going to break down the Texan season, what we can look forward to in the offseason a little bit more. Also, Kevin has a great interview with Shay Serrano of The Ringer, talking everything from Brock Osweiler to the rap scene in H-Town, as well as uh, some Spurs and Rockets chatter as well. But uh, let's move on to our headlines real quick. Uh, the big story within the city this week is Jeff Bagwell being one of three members in the Hall of Fame 2017 class. He's heading to Cooperstown, will be inducted into the Hall of Fame in uh, this summer in July. But he was joined by Tim Raines, as well as Pudge Rodriguez, who Pudge Rodriguez is one of my favorite players of all time i played catcher playing baseball but uh, such a great talent and uh, there were some guys that didn't make it this year that uh, kind of surprised me i was i was a little surprised that vladimir guerrero didn't make it uh, trevor hoffman fell just short of the 75 uh, percent vote needed and hunter i know you're a uh, I, I know that you are a fan of mike musina he didn't make it this year uh, yeah. but, but I, i'm kind of curious did the hall of fame get it right i'm sort of on the fence about it because I, th- I feel like the barometer for a Hall of Famer should be a gut check. Like, you should just know, right? The, the idea that uh, these guys on the fringes, they have to wait a couple years to get in. We have to, like, scrutinize their numbers if they fall short of those kind of automatic numbers, whether it's 500 career home runs, et cetera. Like, I don't get why a Hall of Famer should be debated. The whole point is that it's like a museum of the best players ever. You know, to there does seem to be, since... There's been a halt on allowing anybody with a connection to steroids. That right. there's now more of a focus on these guys that are on the fringes in a way to compensate for it. So it's like you know, it's just a mess on top of a mess. So one of the things that I think is fascinating is we spoke with John McClain about the NFL Hall of Fame, which is going to be voted on during Super Bowl weekend here in Houston in just two weeks. But he had mentioned that of the 15 finalists this year, only five can get in, but there are several Hall of Famers that will eventually get in. The issue that I have with both Major League Baseball and the NFL is when it comes to first ballot Hall of Famers. Like, if you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer. Jeff Bagwell waited, what, seven years to get in? I mean, why wasn't he a Hall of Famer seven years ago? Why is he now? That's the question that I have. But when you look at his stats, 79.6 career war, which is sixth among first basemen in MLB history. He's the only player in MLB history with 30 home runs, 100 ribbies, 100 runs, 100 walks, and six straight seasons. He had a 408 career on base percentage. I mean, he was a great first baseman. But do you put members in the Hall of Fame based on what they did at their position, or do you compare it to the other the other eight guys on the field? Yeah, like catchers, catchers and relief pitchers, they get their own you know consideration because right. it's a kind of a limited role. Right. But yeah, like, I, I don't know. I just uh, this is I'm going to sound like such an old school like hot taker, but when I think of Jeff Bagwell, I don't think of a guy that was that dominant. I don't think of that many big moments the guys had. I also don't think of him defining his era, right? A lot of Hall of Famers we associate with decades or we associate with a span where they define the sport and they were on top. And he played at a time when he was overshadowed by a lot of these guys that we suspect of steroid use. So maybe, again, that's why So here's an it. interesting thing about Bagwell. He had more career steals than King Griffey Jr., who everyone thinks is uh, you know a, a crazy on-base guy. But 
when I look at Tim Raines and I look at Jeff Bagwell, I think the two strikes against them are they didn't play in major markets. I mean, the city of Houston is not a major baseball market compared to somewhere like St. Louis, compared to somewhere like New York or uh, Atlanta. And then Tim Raines spent, what, six years with the Expos. So I get why you said they didn't define their era, but they also were hamstrung a little bit by being in a smaller town. And I wonder if, if you know, Bagwell had the same career in Boston, because, of course, he was traded um, by Boston back in the 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. And I, I think that if he would have played his career in Boston you would know his name. He'd be a household icon, right? I guess that's a fair point, right? I'm like the north, like the close-minded northeasterner sure. here who, for sure, who doesn't, I, I'll admit, I admit that I don't know a lot about Astro's history. So uh, I guess that's a good point. I just, uh, like, what was this guy's relevant moments? What were his relevant moments in baseball? You know, and we're, and we're going to get into a discussion I know about Vladimir Guerrero, for right. instance. Like, that's a guy where immediately when his name gets brought up, we think of him as one of the greatest outfitters we have ever seen. He's another guy that spent a lot of time with the Expos. But I, I remember seeing footage of him. I, there was a show that used to be on called This Week in Baseball. I don't know if you guys watched it, Twib. But they had highlights. and Twib, also coincidentally your high school nickname, Austin. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I thought it was, was ASAT. But that's cool, too. Um, don't call him that. But anyways, Vlad Guerrero had such a canon from the outfield. I mean, he could throw it from the outfield also, wall, the home plate. Also, uh, career lifetime batting average, like 318 or something? Yeah, he, he was the guy raked. That, that's a whole favorite to me, He right? was a guy that didn't have a strike zone. I mean, he was a guy that would take swings at pitches that were six inches off the plate and, you know, pull it over the wall. I mean, it, he was just such a phenomenal hitter. Another guy that I think is a phenomenal hitter, Manny Ramirez, who obviously didn't get in because he's clouded with the steroids, but... That's a shame. Yeah. Barry Bonds, who this year, both Bonds and Clemens, two guys that did not get into the Hall of Fame, uh, they received 54% and 53% I know, they crept the up a lot. What do you have, by any chance, do you have in front of you or do you have it written down somewhere what their original first year percentages were? I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it was somewhere between it was 25 and 30%. Yeah. It, was, it was relatively low. I, th- that's weird to me too. That you know, just because it's as if like, the writers are waiting as long as possible for either a confirmation of their guilt or a confirmation of their innocence. The whole process, by the way, like I'm not a fan of the Hall of Fame. I feel like we, we talked about what you say. Kevin? It's Byzantine and Labyrinthine. I'm reading about it right now. The way they've adjusted from 15 years to 10 years, and you get fewer votes now. They're trying to force out these steroid era guys. That way, just the time passes and it's no longer a problem. But then you're left with a Hall of Fame that is uh, that is. Uh, missing many of the most uh, notable players of that era, which I think would be a shame as well. So it's, it's, I, as I read about the process, it's infuriating. I don't, it makes me angry to read about these really, uh, uh, the philosophies they have, the sort of, um, I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine being a voter and having to deal with this kind of stuff. And, and it's just, uh, it's deplorable, I think. Yeah. Like, and, but let me ask you, Austin, you definitely probably care about this more than I do. One of my childhood icons is in Cooperstown. That, that, that makes two of them. So yeah, <laughs> two yeah, them, I yeah. do. Is it good for the Rockets? <laughs> it is good for the Rockets. You know, I think it just that. brings a lot of excitement <laughs> to the city of Houston. No, and what, whenever what? the city's excited, they rally behind the Rockets. No, and I think you do underestimate how much they made a regional impact. The Killer Bees, Vigio and Bagwell. I mean, even as a non-baseball fan as a child, uh, I was you know inundated with, with you know iconography and references and so forth. So they were definitely impactful. And I think not just within the city of Houston, but within the region as well. But obviously. Obviously, that didn't necessarily extend to the Northeast. No, but I was actually just going to ask about the Hall of Fame period, Austin. Right? It's like I have certainly my adult life. I don't really care that much about it because it doesn't dictate how I feel about players. Right? It doesn't dictate my best of list. And the Hall of Fame is—it's just a museum in a place where apparently baseball wasn't invented. Actually, it was invented Mm -hmm. in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Like, 
it's just a hall of pictures, and it doesn't. And whether Clemens has a plaque there or not, it doesn't change my perception of him either as good or bad. And for Bagwell too, just because he got in, I, I don't really think of the guy as that special. So I, I see your point about the museum and it just being another museum. I think that's fine. I think uh, for me, what defined it is just the term Hall of Famer to say that this person is one of the best of the best that ever played the game of baseball. I think that's cool. I, I couldn't care less about the plaque or anything like that, but I, I think it's actually being able to say, I grew up being, you know, telling your kids, your grandkids, yeah, you know, this Jeff Bagwell, this Craig Biggio guy, this Pud Rodriguez, I grew this up. This Mike Mussina. Not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up going to watch him at the Astrodome. You know, I, I'd get there two hours before watching him do batting practices. That's kind of cool. Do you I think they're lowering the standards, though? To let guys in, and because they feel obligated to just vote for somebody when the list you have so. is full of dirty players. Here's here's what so. I found interesting about the article that you're referring to. There, one point four percent of all players in Major League history are Hall of Famers, uh, according to FoxSports.com. Which, uh, as you think macrocosmically about it, is that a good number? Like, if you think about the Hall of Fame and what it ought to enshrine in honor, does that seem like a good cutoff point for you? Like, the top one and a half percent of players are those ones that you'd want enshrined in a hall if you were to if you were to come up with this, uh, you know, from scratch. Your vocabulary is so high today by the way <laughs> labyrinth byzantine iconography and what was that he's trying to impress you it's the first time you've been back in a few weeks so. i think you just said the name of a painkiller what was the last thing you said micro macrocosm macro okay that would be the opposite of like dwarfism right, right well okay. a microcosm would be a small picture macrocosm think big picture is what i'm saying i'll, I'll try to, to dumb it down Yo, we have just dumb listeners big picture. too yeah, big picture wise, if you were generating a Hall of Fame that was designed to honor the best players, is one and a half percent of all time players about the number that you want to hit? Yeah, I, as I, long as it doesn't include yeah. Jeff Bagwell. Yeah. Like I, so, but, but you, you are going to make a lot of people in the city upset. <laughs> well, but let me. Uh, fine. <laughs> Already used to it. But um, here's what never would have happened this year, and this is an, this is gets to my, my point. We never would have had a year where no one would have been voted in. Right? We did. Like, we did four years ago. Nobody was voted in. It was the first year that Craig Biggio was eligible. Whoa. Yeah. Nobody was voted in. I'm out. All right. <laughs> Jeff Bagwell should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> All right, wow. We've you. really turned him around. Yeah. Yeah. All that's, right. That's so a success. No I, I think voted. so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Three, three or four years ago. Shocking. Yeah. But let's move on to a different headline. <laughs> uh, college football season is over, but uh, there was some news this past week. Uh, up with the Oregon, uh, up up in Oregon, as three Oregon football players were hospitalized after workouts were quote unquote described as grueling, and uh, this kind of brings a larger question. There was an article on CBS Sports talking about college football's unchecked conditioning culture that it's quote unquote dangerous for players. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious: are off-season workouts? too much. I mean, we hear about all these conditioning programs and that, you know, you don't really take time off from the football season. It, you know, once the season ends, you're essentially building up your body. You're trying to gain more speed and preparation for that next uh, fall season. But has it gone too far? I mean, we've seen cases in the past few years of college athletes dying, high school athletes dying. Is this something that maybe the NCAA should look at? Absolutely. I mean, I think the NCAA is a worthless organization. I despise it. But I mean, this is exactly what they are intended to police and do. So I would love for them to take a look at it. You know, it reminds me, I was going to tell you guys a story. My photographer, Tony, you know, I work for uh, the Chronicle Houston Community Newspapers, whatever you want to call it. Personal bedroom photographer or like? 
he's he does it all. I mean, there's nothing he'll say no to. That's the great thing about Tony. But he played college ball at Iowa, and uh, given his age, he's told me before who the head coach was in the years. It must have been 80s, maybe mid 80s. Um, but he he said he talked about some of their conditioning and stuff. He complains about how kids these days are so soft. You know, all the workouts they do are, are pitiful. They can't practice enough. He said that they used to do three hour practices with no water. Water was a sign of weakness. If you had water, you weren't playing. And they would have these tackling dummies that they would be forced to tackle and drive with the coach on top of it and he would take a lead pipe and he would beat them on their helmets to toughen them up as they drove that tackling cart and he talks about this wistfully and nostalgically and I'm always kind of I have the attitude of like you know when you someone tells you they've been abused you sort of you know empathize with them and he 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 doesn't he rejects that entirely he thinks it toughened him up made him a good person he also can't spell and he can't remember things very frequently so I'm not I'm not sure what impact that had ultimately but you're saying he has CTE well you know he's a very sweet guy he's never been remotely violent he gets his job done but he does have some issues with memory that i wonder i'm not a doctor but i kind of wonder looking back if that had some impact because he said yeah i said they really really hit you hard with the lead pipe he's like oh yeah he whacked the hell out of us with the wet lead pipe so you know I, obviously we have moved forward if you're a college program, just from purely self-interest, you don't want news stories about kids collapsing. You don't want kids dying. You don't want kids quitting football because of the way that it affects them. And you don't want kids hospitalized. So even if you believe in that culture of machismo and like you know really building up bodies and you know army-minded toughness, it's still hurting your program in the long run. So I think that the NCAA should investigate certainly. Colleges themselves should be above this. Yeah, there was actually a quote in that CBS story. It said, quote, the assumption is that there is good sports science here in the United States. It's from Jay Hoffman, a past president of the National Strength Coaches Association. He further said, the reality, it's one of the worst in the world. Now, Jeremy, you were, you were the one that actually brought this uh, article to our attention. I, I'm curious, what are your takeaways from Jeremy's this? Jeremy's here? Oh, yeah. Hey, guys. Uh, I, I was under the table for a while. I'm sorry. I just, I just popped in my seat. Yeah, um, it's actually kind of funny. I saw this, saw this story, and it reminded me a lot. Um, I played football real briefly in high school. Um, I was not going to what did take you play? the... Um, With I yourself? Was, uh, right tackle. Right I, tackle? Yeah. And uh, I, I was not going to take the uh, lead pipe on the helmet treatment. So um, That meant something very different in your locker room, though. <laughs> Ooh, you know, you got me there. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't going to take... Uh, the, the workouts were really intense, really extreme. And about that time, this was 2002, 2003... There were at least two or three kids in the Houston area that collapsed and died of cardiac arrest. Now, yeah, because it's not cool to quote unquote take water breaks. Right. Right. Well, and I, I think I, I think the issue was a lot of these kids were taking Adderall for ADHD, but then combined with the heat and the workout, they just uh, it just sent their heart in overdrive. Mm-hmm. But but the the point is though that this is not something that's contained to college. This is this kind of transcends. Um, you know, different levels of football. And I would argue other sports, too. I mean, the, the whole issue here is a lot of these players, like at Iowa, Oregon, are getting rhabdomyles. I think I'm produce, pronouncing that right. But um, it's this condition where you overexert yourself and you get too much protein in your blood, and it can just it can kill you, actually. So um, it is something that I think that we need to take a harder look at. And, you know, what are we telling these guys if they can't, quote, compete at the level? Um, and if so. the science is there, it's a fairly simple matter just to do some research, put someone in a position of authority that can sort of oversee these conditioning and, and give them the final say-so in what these kids can and can't be doing. Because it's not like we don't know. It's that we are willfully ignorant. I say we as though I'm in charge of a college program. But that, that's what it comes down to, I think, is that people just are not applying or paying attention to the science. And uh, I'll be damned if that's you know restricted to sports. I think that's an American problem in general. But, but well, that seems I mean, like as solution. that quote said... As the quote said, sports medicine in the United States is not that good. We think it is, but it's not at the same level as other countries. What are we? What are we suggesting? Do we want either 
Oregon or a program like it to do? I just think what it's do you want them to change? I just think it's fascinating that uh, some of these coaches are kind of go unchecked. I mean, having three people hospitalized when it's not even the heat of the summer. I mean, you hear that typically when it's, you know, 90 degrees out and they're, they're going through two a days and it's heat exhaustion. Maybe they were all like on that. Adderall. It, it's no, possible. Let's be clear. CrossFit gets into more trouble for sending two people nationally to the hospital for rhabdo miles. That's oh, okay. God. You've got into CrossFit, haven't you? No, I have not. Oh, I will. Jesus, I refuse Jeremy. to join CrossFit. Absolutely not. No, but they get into more trouble than the NCAA and does. You know that you would be part of CrossFit because the number one part of CrossFit, like is the number one role, is that you're saying that you're a member. Yeah. yeah. So like he doesn't sort of fight club. He, yeah. Right. He, he doesn't talk about it. So he's definitely not in it. Yeah. This, this soft, doughy, husky body here has not been a CrossFit <laughs> once. Yo, I'm looking into a mirror right now, Jeremy. <laughs> we are not CrossFit people. Both. All right. So. This is a body sponsored by We Desserts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of unathletic people, uh, Johnny Manziel has been boozing it up the last few years, <laughs> and uh, he's trying to make money now. I guess I'm so he's, happy about this. I guess that he's blown through like millions of dollars partying in Cabo, burning stuff up. It's called living life, Austin. Yeah, living life. Well, that is come to a point where he is now charging what fifty dollars for a selfie which he claims he's not charging which he'll be doing at the super bowl here in houston at the woodlands and katie mills ball so uh i think he's charging what a hundred bucks for a autograph can we get we desserts to sponsor an autograph i don't think it's no i don't think we can i don't (laughs) don't think it's worth it but johnny manzel he he says that he's sober now he says that he's you know got his mind right he said he's working out like five six times a week is he a guy that can make a comeback in the NFL? Is that is that even possible? I know a team that wants a new quarterback. I will tell you that in this Manziel uh, narrative, this this saga, originally I rooted for him. I kind of like when guys that go against the norm that aren't like the very staid types that give you the sound bites you always hear. I like that being outside of the mold. What he has done over the past couple of years has been so far beyond the pale that I have lost even the desire to see him resurrect his career. It would take some sort of huge, I don't want to say humiliation, but but like a very obvious sign that he had changed, that his character was fundamentally different. And I haven't seen that. And I, I find myself not even rooting for him the way I do root for a lot of, you know, quote unquote bad boys. You know, guys like Allen Iverson, you know, that were always fun to Hall of Famer, Allen Iverson. Right. Obviously yeah. many differences between <laughs> the two. I mean, I'm, I'm really only highlighting one similarity, which is that they kind of they uh, were both great quarterbacks. Well, that's in high true school. as well, yeah. Allen Iverson is a great high school quarterback. But yeah, I, I, if anything, you could argue Allen Iverson was more violent. He certainly got arrested <laughs> for it. But, that's but true. my point is that I do not find myself rooting for Manziel at this point. I honestly, uh, I, I wish he would, to whatever degree, go away. Well, yeah, as fans, we have a, an odd relationship with bad boys, mm-hmm. which is that yeah. we love them when they're, they go against the grain but succeed in the sport. And as soon as they basically you know, like squander their talent, we turn on them immediately because, you know, they just like threw it all away. And here's a guy who, uh, as you guys know, I'm not the biggest college football fan, but even I was totally dazzled mm-hmm. and enamored with his play. And it he was, was electric. It so much fun to watch And in it college. would have been a dream come true were he able to play like that in the pros. But, you know, as soon as he got his money, had a good time, he just like, urinated it all away. The drugs don't bother me. It's the violent, the domestic violence and also the lack of accountability for being violent and for, for, for infringing on the rights of others. So that's a fundamental difference to me. Do you take drugs? You do whatever you want to your body. I could not care less. Don't think they should be illegal. It's r- what, ridiculous. How did, but how did that, how does domestic dispute get resolved? Because didn't she drop it? 
Somebody jump in here. Somebody I, I, I believe you pled guilty to a lesser charge. Okay. And had you like community service or something like that. And right. that reads to me like a pretty serious situation. That's yeah, how those yeah, yeah. serious situations get resolved. You plead to something lesser, you know, not entirely dropped. I think there's a lot of merit to it. There have also been a lot of multiple incidents that have added up over time. That That's what really disturbs me is the lack of regard for other people. So well, if he were he, a quote unquote... So you think he's going to come back or what? Uh, I, I, I hope he does not. Because I don't think he's learned the lessons from this, honestly. I mean, you could be working out all you want. That doesn't make you any better of a person. That doesn't make you better to other people. Uh, I'm not so much as interested in seeing him succeed as I used to be. Yeah, I think this all depends on his level of commitment to keeping himself away from the substances and people that got him into this place in the first place. I mean, he, he's an addict. Uh, cl- clearly, a lot of addict behavior with, with what he did and domestic violence and all that stuff. I think his destiny is in his own hands. Now, if a team like the Jets take a gamble on him, which I think would be disastrous for the Jets, but not out of character for them. <laughs> I mean, they've um, already got, what, four quarterbacks on their roster right yeah, now? Yeah, right. I, don't I, know. Well, you know, I mean, what does that do to the, to the two quarterbacks that they're sort of developing right now? Bryce Petty and then, you know, whoever the other guy is. But um, I, I don't <laughs> Christian know. Christian Hackenberg. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what, what does that do for that culture? I mean, they need to be developed in sort of a more stable environment. Adding Johnny Manziel in there is like, you so, know, here, let me sprinkle some gunpowder on Where did you... I'm kind of curious. We have a quarterback opening here in Houston, why did you make that jump to say Manziel was going to go to New York rather than suggest he play for the Texans? I, I, I would not wish that on the Texans right now. We, who we, we have who would you rather have starting next year, Brock Osweiler or Johnny Manziel? Oh, Manziel, hands down. Are you serious? No. He couldn't be any worse. Yeah, I'm with Austin on that. <laughs> wow. Plus, we we it would be really fun. Do Darkly you, divided. Do you remember uh, a few years ago when he was drafted, uh, he personally came out and said that the Texans needed to take him number one overall, and he said that if... He said that if he's Mr. the man, he's the he, man. He said that if like Mr. McNair and Rick Smith didn't draft him number one overall, he would make them pay for like the next 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this kid's the man. I want I, him I'm, the I'm so glad that we have JD Clowney over him. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I would I would still take Brock Osweiler, who is a very decent guy that has the love and respect of his teammates as much as you can love and respect somebody that does not help you win that much. But as far as I know, I mean, I'm not in the locker room, but that's my impression. No, but if Manziel, it's a homecoming if he comes back to Texans, right? Mm. Like, Texas A&M fans would embrace him Gosh, again. A&M it, fans are like, oh, they, not they even want fans to love him. him again so badly. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. I think A&M fans are like torn. I think some people are like, whoa, I, they I want really to respect what like, you did. They, like, you know, the same way that you want to like love your younger or older brother who had to hit you up for money, borrowed a lot of money, said he was going to pay you back and that this business was going to work out, and then it doesn't, and he runs off. You sound like you're uh, speaking from experience. No, Austin, I'm not speaking from any experience. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Uh, I'm just trying to, uh, you know. Anyway, what's the next topic? (laughs) So uh, Rick Perry, who you might remember is the uh, former governor of the state of Texas, uh, was nominated by the Trump administration as uh, energy secretary. To a department he famously forgot the name of. Yeah. Which is interesting. Not only that, but he wipe it out. Yeah, he yeah. wanted to get rid of it. It was yeah. one of three government organizations. And didn't realize that it controlled our nuclear weapons. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it was a shock to him. Rick Perry is about to be confirmed as the energy secretary, and uh, he had an interesting interaction with Al Franken, former comedian, who is now a Democratic senator. I think he's still a comedian. Oh, he's great. And I think he's still a senator. <laughs> 
this interaction between them two, I, I just thought it was great. Kevin, you had a you had a pretty good laugh out of it, right? Oh, uh, I did have a little bit of a good laugh, sort of Al Franken being chagrined. Or I, I think that Rick Perry was being deliberate. If you haven't seen the video clip, I don't know, was this during the confirmation hearing question? Yes, it was on the confirmation hearing this yeah, past week. Yeah, he was talking to Al Franken, who he spent some time with, I guess, and he said that I hope you're as much fun up there on the dais as you were on your couch earlier. And Franken sort of uh, looks down. It felt like it was written by someone else for Rick Perry, and the way he grins like an idiot afterward just made me think that he was so happy to deliver that line but it is a good line and what's otherwise a pretty dry proceeding so right. i didn't hate it and it, it kind of humanized him for me and he kind of i don't know rick perry it's, it's it's very odd to me to look at his career path he was governor of the state of texas and then he went on dancing with the stars and wait hold on this is 100 news to me he was on dancing with the stars yeah yeah i didn't know this either was. oh yeah. my god i was yeah. spellbound he, he was on dancing <laughs> That is exactly what Rick Gray wanted. Was it because he was the first Republican on Dancing with the Stars ever? Or no, uh, Tom Delay, I believe, went on before. Tom that. Delay. Tom Delay danced in a Stars and Stripes. He looked like a Wait, cracked out Uncle. Jeremy, Sam. this is your niche. Uh, yeah, I oh, didn't no. realize oh, no. that you were like our Dancing with the I Stars didn't, expert. No, I, I, I just, I just pay attention to what, what, what GOP, you know, what washed up GOP representative or senator makes it on the bar Dancing for with. stars in Dancing with the Stars must be very low. It's not high. It's never been high. Never watched it. I mean, Ryan Lochte was on it as well. He's arguably a star. Yeah, maybe. But <laughs> going looks back to great the in tights. Yeah. But right. that's another thing. Rick Perry is not, not someone you want to see dancing. I can't imagine. Tom DeLay, I can, I mean, yeah, nightmare. So, so if you can, go ahead and check that video out on YouTube. And also, if you didn't watch Saturday Night Live this past weekend, uh, Aziz Ansari hosted, and I thought he did a great job with his did opening not. monologue nah, with, you know, just reflecting on Donald Trump. I mean, there was some great humor in there, but here's my issue with it. I thought the yeah. writing was great. I thought his delivery was mediocre. I think that there, I could probably list you 25 comedians that could have done a better job with that exact same material. All right, go. No, 25. I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't do that to <laughs> Start the with one. <laughs> Louis C.K. Keep going. Okay. Uh, Will Anderson. I'm kidding. Don't keep going. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> this is very bad podcasting, but I am a big fan of comedians. I do have a long list of comedians. Oh, Dave Anthony is one of the best. And actually, Dave no, just Anthony. Just chill, chill out. It was funny. It was timely. Yeah, he was the right guy for it. Kevin, we're know, doing like, some inaugural coverage on Facebook Live that is well worth checking out. Dave Anthony, go look at yeah, so, so go check that out. And the inauguration itself was just kind of interesting, especially the uh, the war that Spicer kind of created with the, uh, the with the press. And I think that's going to be an interesting narrative to watch in the next uh, coming months. Uh, you know how the administration communicates with the press and. Uh, I think, it, I think it's a huge narrative going on. But let's move on real quick to well, our... I, I, I was very okay. proud that I had uh, a sis, two sisters, uh, an ex-girlfriend, a bunch of friends that marched in various marches throughout the country, one of them in D.C. That was uh, very impactful and very cool. So that was that was an interesting moment this weekend that I think, um, you know, people aren't glossing over. People are aware of it, but uh, it, but it impacted me. I wish I could have been a part of that, but unfortunately had uh, some deadline stuff to do, and so I kind of watched it from Twitter. But uh, shout out to anyone who got involved this week. I know there were some marches in Houston as well, and that was, uh, that was a proud moment for me as a citizen of this country, which I don't ordinarily think of myself as. Yeah, no matter what party line you sit on, whether you're from the left, whether you're from the right, I encourage everyone out there to be politically active because I think... Uh, if you're on the right, chill. It's fine. Yeah, see, I have the opposite advice. No, I, I, yeah, if you're on the left, just stay home. Please don't vote. Well, they did. In swing states in November, they did stay home. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. In Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. The point is women are great. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Yeah, my, my roommate was actually out there uh, at the Women's March in Houston taking some photographs, and uh, he posted on Facebook, there are so many chicks here. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't know. He's, uh, he's also creating this like uh, swipe right photo session. I don't, we'll have him on maybe to talk about this. But <laughs> so you, 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 I don't think that that... Like what that guy stood for was what the march was about. Right, I missed <laughs> the point. Yeah, I'd say, <laughs> that's not. You really teed that up in a different way. <laughs> yeah, 
he's a, he's a huge advocate for uh, you know women's rights and everything. He's I think similar political. He sure beliefs sounded to Kevin. Like it. But uh, let's move on <laughs> real quick to our final headline of the uh, the introduction. Uh, Rockets Warriors took place on Friday night. Warriors obviously winning 125 to 108. Uh, Clint Capella, who was just back from injury, had 18 points, looked pretty good. Uh, I wasn't at the game, Hunter. You were at the game. What were some of your impressions? It made me think a lot about the first game, like round one, mm-hmm. um, because that win over the Warriors in double overtime, Harden's awesome performance, uh, his numbers were ridiculous. I can't remember. It was like more than 30 points, 17 and 16 or something. But it really made me think back in retrospect, you know, like, gosh, this team needs to find a way to, to continue to hit an incredible amount of three-pointers just to have a puncher's chance, yeah. right? Like that was a bit more of an outlier that win the first time than I, th- I thought it was going into this matchup. And, you know, like the, the easy thing to say, to say is that the shots didn't fall. Ryan Anderson was sick. Uh, Harden was just bullied relentlessly. But it really made me think about how in a, over the course of a seven-game series, the Rockets have a much worse chance than I thought. Because, it, it, you know, I think if you were to take the poll of NBA fans – Certainly, also, if you extracted like the pundits' opinions on television, they all pick the Rockets as posing the biggest threat I've to the Warriors, that. right? Yeah. Like, whenever people ask, and it, it that put a big hole in that argument now. Well, one of, one of the things that I had, I had heard, there was a guy from NBA TV that was on uh, Sports Radio 610, I believe uh, it was uh, with Mike Meltzer and Seth Payne, who we've had on the show before. Uh, but he had mentioned that one of the things that could potentially impact the Warriors is they're more of a, like a finesse team. You know, they're. In the postseason, the games are called differently by the officials and suggested that might benefit someone like the Rockets a little bit more. He didn't go as far to say as the Rockets would you know, win the Western Conference, but he said they did present the biggest challenge. Do you see the Rockets being ahead of that pecking order over like the Spurs? No. I, I, well, oh, ahead of the Spurs, sorry. absolutely. And I will say that. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna echo kind of your sentiment, but but refine it a bit. There, it's it's we've talked about it before. Even with Daryl Morey, it's high risk, high reward, right? If you hit those threes, you are virtually unbeatable. If you're not hitting the threes, you look absolutely terrible. That's the way this team is designed. They take more threes than virtually anyone. They have historic type numbers. That is kind of what we're living with in the world that we're in here. I don't mind it. I think that's a way you can kind of punch up to a team like the Warriors who have more talent. Yeah, but, well, we're suggesting that the only way that the Rockets are going to beat the Warriors is they are going to beat the Warriors at the Warriors game, right? They're going to match them shot for shot. They're going to outshoot them. The biggest difference I can tell you from being there in person as well is, holy cow, the Warriors are way more physical than I had known. And maybe that was a big difference, too, between round one and round two between these two teams this season. They were extremely... I guess they were they were bodying up Harden and Eric Gordon way more than I thought they were in that first game. I don't know if that's something that they can consistently do. Maybe it's something that they developed the Warriors as they've gotten deeper into the season and they figured out how to play better. But uh, that was also a huge difference. It was just the this, this simple part that the Rockets uh, were not bullied nearly as hard as they were uh, in that second game. Yeah, I, I think the big thing for me this past weekend with the Rockets is the fact that they went on the road the next night to knock off the Memphis Grizzlies for the first time this season, moving to 11-1 and in the second half of back-to-back games. But they won the game 119-95, and and I think that's a huge win. Sam Decker obviously went off, had a career high in scoring. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun once we uh, get toward the postseason. We just hope that the Rockets can stay healthy so they can uh, potentially 
make a run in the Western Conference, but uh, a lot is still left to be on the table. I feel like they're maximizing the talent they have. They're developing their players internally. They have what may be the best player in the league this year. I mean, I think he certainly is deserving the MVP award. It's Sam everything Decker. you want. Yeah, <laughs> Sam Decker, best player in the NBA this year. Yeah, I, I think you look at it. The Rockets had the coach of the year, the most yep. valuable player. Yep. The sixth man of the year. Yep. Obviously, Maury maybe is the GM of the year. I would say so. So you have four national I mean, that's pretty impressive that's that's great for rockets it's fans. a great it's the best possible version of this year that it could have been starting out you know in the beginning of the season i am i'm thrilled and they're fun to watch yeah without question but uh great headlines guys and uh you know here in just a few moments we're gonna have two uh, amazing interviews again first off it's gonna be john mcclain from the houston chronicle and also we've got shea serrano from the ringer uh, so without further ado it's time to sit back relax and be informed you're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is a guy who needs no introduction. That's John McClain from the Houston Chronicle. And John, thanks again for joining us this week on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, it's great to have you back on. And uh, of course, we wanted to bring you on to discuss the Texan season, obviously finishing uh, last week against the Patriots being knocked out in the divisional round of the playoffs. But when you look at the uh, entire 2016 season in a whole, you know, factoring in J.J. Watt's injuries, factoring in the other uh, key injuries on the defensive side of the ball and also the you know the quarterback situation when you're evaluating this season is nine and seven and a playoff loss to the Patriots considered a success oh yeah because they got farther than they did last year only four teams advanced farther than the Texans did Texans were one of eight finalists and they did it with no quarterback so yes the team was a success it's amazing to me how many people think it was a failure and I'm thinking, how many of those people picked them to win at New England? And when you consider they finished first in defense, as you mentioned, without Watt, but also without Kevin Johnson and John Simon, Kevin for more than half the season, and Simon for the last part of the season, it was a remarkable accomplishment because they had terrible quarterbacking, the best, worst of all the playoff teams other than Oakland, and that was because of Derek Carr's injury. So... I think, yes, they to be one of the last eight teams out of 32 to win the third playoff game in history this season is a success. Not as good as they wanted, of course, but I never had any expectations for them to get to the AFC Championship game before the season. Well, let's uh, start with the largest and most obtrusive elephant in the room, which would be Brock Osweiler. And, and you would know a lot better than I would. I think there's certainly been worse quarterbacks than Brock Osweiler in NFL history. But has there ever been a worse return on investment given the size of his contract and his performance this season? Not based on the first year, no. Now, Osweiler helped them win the division title. He helped them. He helped them win a playoff game, and he actually played pretty well in that game. There were spurts. He didn't have one great game start to finish. He had, he had. if you could take the first quarter, the Tennessee game, the end of the Indianapolis overtime game and overtime, take another second, third quarter, he might have had one great game from start to finish, but you can't do that. And uh, now they're stuck with him because of his salary cap for one more year. doesn't mean they need to draft somebody really bad. Tom Savage going into the last year of his contract – he flashed in brief playing time, but he can't stay healthy. You know, Savage, it's his third year, and he's been hurt every year in the league. And uh, that when a guy plays sparingly and he's still hurt, that does not bode well for him to get the job on a full-time basis. 
Now, we kind of assume that the Texans are going to use a high draft pick on a quarterback. Uh, but when you look at the quarterback race next year, obviously, Osweiler coming back with a $17 million contract. Uh, Savage, as you mentioned, in the last year of his contract. Do you foresee one of those two guys being the starting quarterback next year? Or is there kind of a wild card in there, a potential uh, guy like Tony Romo, who Vegas seems to think is potentially uh, the, the future quarterback for the Texans? Yeah, I can't wonder why, because they can't fit his contract on the Texans, uh, he can't cut Osweiler. Right now, when it, in, when March the 9th, when the new league year begins, the Texans are projected to be $25 million under the cap. They've got to try to re-sign A.J. Boyer, Ryan Griffin, John Simon, extend DeAndre Hopkins, re-sign Quentin Demps, Shane Leckler, and Nick Novak. Now, they could designate Osweiler as a June 1st cap casualty, and that way the the cap would be $19 million instead of 25 Well, they're going to wipe out all but $6 million of their cap to get rid of Osweiler. That'd be asinine. And then how would they take on a contract like Tony Romo's? I see all these people around the country saying Tony Romo's coming here, and I think they have no clue about the Texan salary cap situation. You can't add a veteran. That's why they need And they're not going that route anyway. Why in the world would they want Tony Romo's been hurt the last two years? That would be ridiculous. They need to draft a quarterback. No more band-aids on the scab. They need to target somebody they like. And if they got to trade up in the first round and trade two number ones and two number twos, they got to get it done. And they've got to hope that there's somebody Bill O'Brien likes or somebody that they wouldn't have to trade up very far to get because the idea with having no no draft choice, no high pick, and that'd be a first or second rounder if they didn't take a quarterback in one of those two rounds people would be so depressed going into next season when you look at the quarterbacks coming out it's not an overly strong quarterback class but there are two guys that I kind of like Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes from Texas Tech do you see either of those two guys potentially fitting into the Bill O'Brien system I've covered the NFL for 38 years this will be my 39th I've never known any way you could project a quarterback right now when they haven't even started the evaluation <laughs> process. Nobody knew who Carson Wentz was this time last year. Nobody was giving Dak Prescott the time of day. Two years ago, everybody was saying, well, Marcus Mariota won the Heisman, but it's going to take him at least two years to learn to play in the NFL. The bottom line is this. After they go through the combine pro days, private workouts and interviews, there will be guys emerge in the top three, Mitch Trubisky, Deshaun Watson, and Sean Kaiser at Notre Dame are supposed to be the top three. Now, Pat Mahomes, he's got a problem where he went to school. Nobody ever takes Texas Tech quarterbacks seriously because of the history of Tech quarterbacks failing in the NFL after they've thrown for millions of miles in college. Now, he can dispel that myth. He's one of those that's got a chance to, to rise like Nathan, I think it's, Peterman and uh, at Pitt, a couple others out there that I'm told will do well when they start working out. Brad Kyatt, Miami, and there will be somebody like Carson Wentz that as time goes on, he's going to look great in his shorts and T-shirts and his stock will rise.
Certainly interested to see who the, the breakout star of this coming class is. But there's been a lot of storylines, obviously, with the Texans. And one of the most perplexing to me has to be uh, the departure of George Gotze and the promotion or self-promotion, not a promotion, but but uh, Bill O'Brien taking that OC job, essentially eliminating the OC position entirely, calling the plays himself and so forth. I always hear conventional wisdom is kind of that head coaches need to be CEOs and that it's easy to stretch yourself like too thin, taking on too many responsibilities. And I don't know that O'Brien's play calling this year was anything special or brilliant so is it a wise move for him to call his own number uh, in this scenario well he only did it for one game he took it over for one game gave it back to god seeing george call rest of the year then to try to fool people they both had their cards in front of them and o'brien has to sign off on everything <laughs> but uh god should call the plays for most of the season and i agree mike mccarthy calls it a lot of offensive coaches want to call plays defensive coaches never do of course and uh, I think that I don't agree with it. I used to tell Gary Kubiak, you know, same thing. But he'll always like to call the plays. It's amazing how the play callers, people think they do a good job when they got a quarterback. If you don't have a quarterback, you're not doing a good job. That's the bottom line. It doesn't matter who's calling them. If Osweiler's the quarterback, they're not going to look good. People are going to say, man, O'Brien should have taken that on. But if they got a quarterback, all of a sudden he's going to look pretty smart. Um, I think that O'Brien can do that. They're going to promote Sean Ryan, their receivers coach, who's going into his second year, to quarterbacks. When he during his nine years with the Giants, he did quality control, wide receivers, quarterbacks, and he coached uh, Eli Manning for three years. They like him a lot, so he's going to do that. They still have Pat O'Hara coaching quarterbacks as well, and uh, Sean Ryan will work with the offense. They just won't have the title right now, and the reason is this. Bill Belichick doesn't give titles right away. you got to earn them. So Sean Ryan will probably spend one year as a receivers coach and then be the offensive coordinator. And that's the way Belichick operates up there, and that's the way most Belichick disciples work. They want people to – they may give them the responsibility. O'Brien had the play-calling responsibility, and then they named him offensive coordinator. So I think that's what they'll do with Sean Ryan. They're going to move, uh, I think uh, John Perry, tight ends coach, will move to receivers. They have several on the offensive staff. There's a, there's a shuffling because of Godsey. And really, they did Godsey a favor because he'll get another job and he won't have to coach Osweiler. <laughs> You alluded to something which I think is an interesting point there, which is the getting rid of George Gotze. It does make sense on one level, given the way the offense underperformed. But on the other hand, you're chained to Brock Osweiler. I mean, what realistically can O'Brien do differently and better with the same basic quarterback that we had before? Well, first of all, Osweiler ought to be a little better. You know, his main problems this year, he's inaccurate. And the New England game was a great example. They're down one score in the fourth quarter. People are starting to squirm in the press box. They're starting to squirm in the stands. They know, they know they're not going to lose, but they were all expecting a blowout, and the Texans had played as well as they could, even Osweiler. Then DeAndre Hopkins runs a crossing route, and he throws it high and behind him intercepted. Then his second interception was shortly after that, and that was a kind of a microcosm of what's the problem. Both of those, he was trying to hit Hopkins, counting his playoffs. He had 18 interceptions, 10 trying to get the ball to Hopkins. He doesn't find open receivers enough, and he tries to force the ball, and he makes some decisions 
that make you, like, slap your head with your palm. Like, what in the world are you thinking? Because he's not stupid. But I figure they won the division. They won a playoff game with him. With Watt back, the defense should be better, especially if they can re-sign A.J. Boyer, and they will upgrade their offensive line. One of the first two picks, depending on quarterback, is going to be an offensive tackle. If they get Derek Newton back, they could move him to right guard. Nick Martin, the number two pick last year, will be back at center, although Greg Mance played really well in his place. Too bad one of those guys can't play right guard. But from what I'm told, they are just strictly centers. So they couldn't be worse. The problem is the division's getting better, especially Tennessee. So what I'm thinking is um, Savage would be the, They want to see more of Savage, but he's got to stay healthy. I think they'll draft a quarterback in one of the first two rounds. They will groom him whenever O'Brien thinks he's ready. And I'll say this about George Godsey. I thought it was very unfair to run him off, and I think maybe he wanted to be gone. And here's why. Last year with Ryan Mallett, Brian Hoyer, T.J. Yates, and Brandon Wheaton, he was, he was the main quarterback coach and the offensive coordinator, and he called plays. And they had 28 touchdowns and 12 interceptions. That's a great ratio. They were tied for 13th in the red zone with 57% touchdowns. And the offense scored 34 touchdowns. Quarterbacks accounted for 30. So they make a change. Brock Osweiler comes in. He has 15 touchdowns, 16 interceptions. They scored 23, tied with the Rams for last. The offense does. And it's 31st in the red zone at 40%. Now, did Godsey get stupid over the offseason? Did he have a lobotomy? Did a tree fall on him? Did he go brain dead? <laughs> what is the difference there? The difference is the quarterback. So everybody, I mean, everybody, you got to fire Godsey. you got to fire Godsey, and they don't look at things like that. Definitely, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Bill O'Brien does next year with the offense. But uh, looking at the defensive side of the ball, I mean, I, I couldn't be more impressed with the job that Romeo Cornell and Mike Vrabel did this year, uh, especially despite all of the injury issues. And uh, you actually wrote on Wednesday morning that uh, Mike Vrabel is going to be named the new defensive coordinator for the Texans, and they are going to retain Romeo Cornell in a coaching position. But uh, Vrabel has a guy, you know, played with the Patriots, uh, won Super Bowls. He's, you know, done such a great job as a linebackers coach. He's interviewed for other coordinator positions, interviewed for the Rams head coaching job this year, a rising star in the coaching circles. How important is it for the Texans to keep him on staff and to give him that promotion? Four teams were interested in talking to him about defensive coordinator jobs, and um, they wouldn't have had to let him go. They Last year when he went to San, interviewed San Francisco, uh, they kept him as linebacker's coach, gave him a good contract, three years, a lot of money. And told him, whenever Romeo's done, then you'll be the coordinator. And when all these teams reached out to him, they could have held him back legally. You cannot leave for promotion if you're under contract. But Bill O'Brien thinks that's not fair. You know, it's not like when Marvin Lewis kept Vance Joseph from going to Denver and Wade Phillips took over. And so O'Brien lets them go if they can get a promotion. So rather than do that, they went ahead and named him coordinator. Mike worked close with Romeo this year. Romeo and Vrabel are really tight going back to the New England days. And you could see if you watched him on the sideline, Mike was always next to Romeo. Romeo's making a calls. He's signaling a signal making a lot of signals for changes. And they've got a really good defensive staff. John Butler, good secondary coach. 
Vrabel's great. The first-year defensive line coach, Anthony Weaver, did a tremendous job with Clowney. And D.J. Reader, the rookie nose tackle, who's really good. And uh, Joel Heath, the free agent defensive end, who started half the year. So they got a good staff there. And everybody says Vrabel's going to be great. And what I like is he only talks to us when it's mandatory twice a year. Now he's going to have to talk to us once a week. I kept telling him. (laughs) You're going to get this promotion. You're going to have to come in there every week and talk to us. And he's like rolling his eyes. I can't wait. And I, I think, and I tweeted today, I think three years as a coordinator, and he'll be a head coach, and he'll be a hot commodity as a head coach. Certainly. Uh this season, I think, was frustrating in some senses, but obviously not without its bright spots. One of the brightest being Jadeveon Clowney. And everything I'm reading is already hailing Jadeveon Clowney as an out-and-out superstar. And obviously he had his best season with J.J. Watt out, and so it's leading a lot of pundits to make comparisons between them. Uh, is Clowney's ceiling higher than Watt's? And how much improved is the overall defense when they're both back and healthy, do you think? Nobody's ceiling's iron Watt. We're talking about one of the two or three greatest defensive players in history. And Clowney made tremendous improvement. He's very disruptive. He, they moved him. When Cornell moved him to right defensive end from outside linebacker, caught us off guard, Clowney didn't like it because he's playing the five technique. He's over the left tackle. It's a rundown. It's a run first position. The right defensive end at 3-4 never gets a lot of sacks. Cornell used to say it's because you ball snap, you grab your guy, and you grind, you locate the ball, and then you go get it. You're not just charging up the field like you can at the other side that Watt plays. But they all have run responsibility, and over the last 10 games, counting two playoff games, they only gave up 73 yards a game rushing, and they were really good against the run. Now, some people around the league look at Clowney's six sacks and say, hey, what's the big deal? They don't see the tackles for loss, the hits on the quarterback, the how disruptive he was disruptive he was at flushing out of the quarterback, forcing them to get rid of the ball too quick. The idea of Watt and Clowney is bookends around DJ Reader, the rookie, who was so impressive, which is one reason I think Vince Wilfork's contract's up and Reader's behind him, I think he says, I better retire. And that those threesome in a defensive line, they've got to be the best in the NFL, and the linebackers aren't shabby. I had to list the top 50 Texans in order for this season. That's run in uh, the Wednesday Chronicle, I mean the Thursday Chronicle, and it was hard. It was easy at the top. And I had Clowney first, Merciless second, A.J. Boyer third, Bernardrick McKinney fourth before I got to the offensive player, Lamar Mil- Dwayne Brown, then Lamar Miller. But with the emergence of Clowney, McKinney, the only player in the league with at least 100 tackles and five sacks in his second year, and Boyer, who Pro Football Focus said was second-best cover corner in the league, the emergence of those three guys on top of Kevin Johnson coming back, he's tremendous, White will be back, that defense could be even better. And what the defense was number one, but it needs to give up fewer points, it would help. If the quarterback didn't throw interceptions in their end of the field and shorten the field for the other team or do it at midfield and make them drive like New England, you know, 80 yards every time, which teams have a hard time doing it against this defense. But it could be it could be big-time dominant. In in the first two games when Watt was healthy, they were 2-0 and they had nine sacks. 
nine sacks with Watt. The rest of the year, they didn't get a lot of sacks. That just shows you the influence he has. So when Watt's back to go along with all that other talent, the defense not only could be number one, could be just downright dominating. Yeah, a lot of excitement with the defensive prospects next year, but uh, there's also a lot of excitement coming up here in Houston as uh, the city is hosting the Super Bowl. We know that you are a, a member of, uh, I guess, the Hall of Fame election committee, and there's 15 finalists this year. Uh, just looking at some of the names, I mean, you've got Jason Taylor, Ladanian Tomlinson, who was so much fun to watch during his heyday. Uh, what are you looking forward to most about gathering in that room and having those discussions to elect that 2017 class? This is a year-long process we go through. We just get together and, and actually do the voting over about a seven or eight-hour period the day before the Super Bowl. And because um, we talk about it, we email about it. We, when we see each other, we go over. When I see people in a and on his, in a, when I'm in a press box and I'll see a general manager, assistant GM, or some scouts that that look at film, I ask them, what about this guy? What about that guy? Who do we not have that needs to go in? And so it's really hard to go in on the first ballot. you got to be an all-time, all-timer. And uh, I think the only one this year that I'm going to vote on the first ballot is LaDainian Thomas. Because I think there's guys who've been waiting like Terrell Owens. I think he deserves it. I think Kurt Warner deserves it. And so we can only put five modern era finalists, and it is difficult because there's so many who are qualified. And I believe Jason Taylor will go in at some point. And really, if you look at the 15 finalists, all of them are Hall of Fame worthy. It is a difficult process. But it's so important to them. It means so much to the to the players and the coaches and the contributors. Jerry Jones is going in the Hall of Fame. The only thing worse would be if his team was in the Super Bowl <laughs> in our city. Yeah, that would have been a nightmare scenario for uh, the city of Houston and Texans fans. But uh, next, or this Wednesday, actually, January 25th, you are hosting a Hard Knocks-inspired Hall of Fame dinner over at the Houstonian. Uh, it's got a lot of star power there as well, uh, a great deal. And I actually recommend that uh, a lot of you guys go to it, our listeners. But, John, uh, if you can, can you just kind of explain to our listeners what's going to be happening that, that evening? I'm glad you brought it up because I did this four times in August at the Houstonian, which to me is our most our most exclusive resort over by the Galleria in the woods, and they put on a great show, first class all the way. And I hosted four dinners, and, uh, and we maxed it out every time at about 40 fans. We had a setup where they could all face each other because I wanted fan interaction. I want to talk to them about the Texans. They want to hear Oilers stories. We talked about the college season coming up. And uh, I like to get them to make predictions. So I don't want it to be just something where I'm up there talking or answering questions. I want to hear what the fans think. So it went over so well, they asked me if I wanted to do one on January 25th, Super Bowl-related. They said they could have Elvin Bethay from the Oilers, Kenny Houston from the Oilers and the Redskins, and Chris Dolman, the great pass rusher in the Vikings, all three members of the Hall of Fame. I could do it with them. So I said I will make the time. And I can't wait to do it. And anybody interested in participating, they'll get autographs, pictures, anything they want from those guys. Go to Houstonian.com. Houstonian.com for the information. We're going to have a great time. 
Yeah, I'm actually going to head out to that event as well. So definitely looking forward to it. And we'll post a link on our uh, website so you can also find it from there. But uh, and, and John, uh, it wouldn't be a podcast with asking you about Baylor football. And uh, last time we spoke, uh, you said that Baylor needed to hire somebody that, uh, you know, could get excitement up, you know, somebody that would actually go to the graves and try to, you know, get that Grant Taff excitement. Matt Roll, a new head coach at Baylor, he's been on the job for uh, nearly two months now. What is your reaction by seeing, uh, you know, him kind of energize the fan base of what he's done so far on the recruiting trail? Well, first of all, a month ago I said I'm from a basketball school. We don't play football <laughs> anymore. And I will say I'm really happy with the men and women's basketball teams that are among the best in the country. But Matt Rule, and I, I keep up with this closely, um, he's got some pledges from good players. He has hit the ground running. And one of the, he's, not, he's never been to Texas. He said, oh, I know all about Waco. My wife watches Figure Upper every Tuesday night. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, people watch that show. Everywhere I go, they'll ask me, hey, you know Fixer Upper? And I act like I know Chip and Joanna. Oh, yeah, I know Chip and Joanna. <laughs> what are they like? I want to say, oh, man, they're jerks. But I don't want to break their hearts. So I tell them, oh, yeah, they're great people. And um, Rule has done a tremendous job getting pledges, getting guys committed to other schools like Ole Miss, TCU, SMU. Baylor's, I think five of Baylor's commitments who decommitted went to UT. And as I told the Longhorns, we're happy to help them rebuild. They need all the help they can get. And I'd like to see them get a couple of those back. But um, about every other day I see somebody pledging to Baylor. And they say Matt Rule, and I've heard Matt. He's We've had him on a show here, and he was a great talker. And the Texans coach I talked about earlier, Sean Ryan, was with him on the Giants staff. And I did a story after Rule was hired. Sean Ryan said, look, you're going to be amazed at how quickly he transitions to Texas because of how hard he works, how enthusiastic he is, how contagious his personality is. And he acted. If he's doing as well as he's doing now, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next year when people know more about him. When he came in, I remember one comment, and I'll say who it was, Kirk Bowles from the Austin American States, was a good friend of mine. He was making fun of him coming from Temple. He said, these kids here don't have any idea where Temple is. He ought to act like he's from Temple High School. And I pointed out to Kirk, (laughs) two coaches who won national championships from the state of Texas were not from Texas. One was from uh, Oklahoma named Royal, and the other one was from North Carolina named Brown. And I pointed mm-hmm. out to Kirk, I said, I thought you might point that out in your column. <laughs> and he was like, well, you know, he, he knew it, of course. And he said, well, Daryl recruited Texas. And I said, yeah, that makes all the difference. But Matt Rule's done a tremendous job. He's added a quarterback transfer from Arizona. I think it's a new, is it a new Solomon? That's correct. Who, it was really good for two years till injuries got him last year. And he got a kid from the state championship team, Brewer, from Austin to go there. I think he's not through. And uh, I looked on our list of the top 100 in this area in the Sunday's Chronicle, and I saw three commits to Baylor, and since then two more have. So I'm hoping they get even more. I am really fired up about Matt Rule. And, you know, he came to town. He hired three prominent high school high school head coaches for his staff and that was smart 
Yeah, a lot of excitement going on in Baylor University right now. I mean, uh, basketball programs, top six in the country, uh, women's number two, and of course, Matt Rule, what he's doing on the recruiting trail right now. But uh, John, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast, and we know that you always need more followers on Twitter. So for our listeners that don't follow you already on Twitter, what is the best way for them to find you? I need as many followers as I can get. I only got 126,000. It's McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N. <laughs> underscore on underscore NFL McLean underscore on underscore NFL I take anybody all comers and I never get back to anybody because I've never looked at Twitter but I do love tweeting and retweeting and thank you guys very much well it's been a pleasure to have you again and we appreciate you for uh, joining us on the podcast and also look anytime forward to- and just remember two words sick and um <laughs> well we look forward to seeing you this Wednesday at the Estonian John thanks guys you're listening to The Weekly Brew. Shea Serrano is a re- writer for The Ringer. He covers everything from pop culture to sports to race, uh, formerly of Grantland, which we've talked about on this show before. Uh, we're big fans of Shea, and we really appreciate him. He's with us here today. Shea, how you doing, man? What up, homie? <laughs> I don't know if I've been called homie uh, in a long, long time, and I kind of appreciate that. It gives me a little warm tingle here. So for, for uh, listeners who may not know, you're a San Antonio native who is now a Houston transplant, yes? That is correct. And, and it's really interesting reading your tweets and your writing. Obviously, you've written a, a book, the Rap Year book, which has been very well received, New York Times bestseller, and so forth and so on. But uh, but so what's it like coming here to Texas? You're now covering the Texans a lot. I've read some of the stuff you've done for The Ringer here. Do you still – do the rooting interests change for you, particularly when it comes to, like, Rockets, Spurs? No, I uh... – I would never root for the Rockets in my whole entire life, and I will only ever root for the Spurs. <laughs> I wonder about that because I've been told as a sports journalist myself that we're supposed to have this sort of uh, objectivity here, but but it's something that's kind of I struggle with because I grew up loving the Rockets and being a big fan and so forth. But uh, So let's get into it here. The Texans season is over. Uh, obviously, you uh, said some really positive things about Brock Osweiler in the Raiders win there. You kind of <laughs> said this may be him coming. I don't want to throw it in your face, man. We've all been wrong before. But, uh, but I want you to give me some hope. It seems like you believed in him. Do you still have any ounce of faith in Brock Osweiler after the most recent performance? Yes, I have an undeniable endless amount of faith in Brock Osweiler. I think we're going to be all right with him at quarterback. That said, uh, I hope that next year our quarterback is Tony Romo. Oh, do you think that's a possibility? No, I don't think it's a possibility at all. I just hope that. (laughs) So you hope for things that are impossible. I think that's that's part of being a sports fan, I think. What gives you even uh, the slightest degree of faith in Brock's ability to be better than he's been? You know, the thing of it is, is he is our, he's the guy that we paid all the money to. So <laughs> there's no, there's no way around it. You know, you know what it feels like? I have a, I have kids, I have three kids. Right. And uh, the, the two older ones are, they're kind of idiots and they like screw up all the time. But like, those are my guys. So I'm going to root for them forever. And I'm always going to be on their team, even though I know like they're going to screw everything up. <laughs> it's the same thing with it's the same thing with Brock. Like he's my guy because he has to be my guy. So like, it doesn't help for me to just shout that he's an idiot all the time. So let me try the other thing. So so being a fan in a sense is almost like good parenting. You sort of have to be patient and loving and put up with the nonsense. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. So uh, you know, we you talked about in a podcast. I think it was the uh, Ringer NFL show. You were with Robert Mays uh, and Kevin Clark, I believe. But but you mentioned JJ uh, Watt. Obviously, he's been um, not playing. He's been injured, but he has certainly been a visible figure as he 
perpetually is, always in front of the camera, which isn't necessarily his fault or so forth. But you mentioned something interesting about him, uh, which is that he kind of likened him to football's The Rock, which uh, you know is an interesting comparison. <laughs> I-, I wonder if you were going to be his agent or his manager, what does his five- or ten-year plan look like in terms of building on his brand aside from getting healthy and playing football again? What does that guy need to do to get even bigger? Uh, he's got to do movies. I think movies is his next thing. He's got to be like, he's got to be in Fast and Furious 9. That's what I'll be plotting for. If I, he's the bad guy and that, and him and The Rock get in a fight. Like, he literally has to fight The Rock to take his spot. Do you get the sense for him that he can act, or would it even matter? I don't think it would matter because he's not going to be an actor, like a real actor. He is going to be. Remember when Stone Cold um, was in that movie? He's going to be like that. Or or like when Brian Bosworth was in a movie. Like, that's the kind of movie he's going to do. John Cena was in a movie. Like, these are the movies he's going... He's going to, the movie is going to be about him on an island somewhere. Like, they just dropped him there, and he has to survive, and he kills everybody. Like, that's the kind of movie he's going to do. I would watch that movie. But, you know, I wonder, he already Everybody suffers. would watch that movie. Of course they would. But, but people talk about him already being overexposed. But The Rock is probably the most overexposed person on the planet, you could argue. And I think he's more or less beloved. People don't seem to have an issue with him. What, what's the difference, you think? Uh, the difference is that J.J. Watt hasn't figured out how to charm everybody yet. The Rock is super, super charming. You just put a camera on him, and he gives you that big, goofy smile. And he starts calling people some bitch. And it's like, I love this guy. The, the Rock can do that. J.J. White hasn't figured that part out yet. He's still sorting through it. You know, The Rock did the same. Like, The Rock had to go through his villain phase. And then, like, we weren't certain about him yet when he was doing movies like The Rundown or whatever. And But then, boom, the pieces snapped into place. J.J. White has to go through that path. Interesting. This is J.J. Watt's villain period. I kind of like that idea and that he's maybe got like a hero's redemption uh, coming around the corner here. So, But we talked about you're from San Antonio. Uh, San Antonio does not have a pro football team. Uh, you know, obviously there's been a lot of movement lately in the NFL in terms of teams relocating. I don't know if I can envision a world in which an NFL team relocates to San Antonio, but if there were ever a case for expansion, do you think that San Antonio should be atop that list? Because that's always been kind of my impression. Uh, probably not. I don't think I don't think it's an exciting enough city. When you watch the moves that are happening now, it seems like they're taking teams away from places that are less exciting and moving them to places that are more. So for San Antonio, we would be the we would be the city where we had a team already and they took it and moved it to like San Francisco <laughs> or some shit like that. It doesn't make any sense to me because I mean I think that like San Antonio diehard fans of course. I lived there for about 8 months myself. I have a lot of positive feelings about San Antonio. Uh, I taught while I was there which we were a teacher as well. But uh, but I, why is that happening? Why why is there a sudden I guess there's money involved or whatever but it seems like uh like it's not a a, a very long-term strategy to move these teams into places that are quote unquote exciting but don't have devoted fan bases that have too many other things to do. It doesn't seem like a smart move to me. What do you make of it? Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't speak to any of that. You know what? You know, I, I know San Antonio's never going to get a football team because everybody in San Antonio has already got a football team. They're all <laughs> Dallas Cowboy fans for the most part. You're not going to drop a new team in there and then all of a sudden people are going to care about them more than the Cowboys. It just won't. It won't work like that. Working class Mexicans love the Dallas Cowboys, so they're just stuck there forever. But you yourself do not. <laughs> but no, but I got out of there before I became a working class Mexican. I, like I was a young... I moved out when I was 17, 18 years old, so it didn't they, they didn't get their hooks in me yet because I didn't start working. Like, you have to work a hard job, like a mechanic or some shit like that, 
and then like you fall in love with cowboys. That's how it works when you're growing up in San Antonio. I didn't go through that phase. I got out before then, and then I moved to Houston right around the same time the Texans franchise was starting, mm-hmm. and I was working a hard job then. I was working in construction at the time. Really? So I was like, oh, this is my football team because <laughs> I'm here with them. The cowboys didn't get me. Yeah, I noticed you use the word we, which people always get on to me about saying we with the sports teams, but I identify with them. I, I care about them so much and follow them and, and so forth. I, I kind of get that. But uh, let's talk Rockets. Uh, I am That is that is me. My, my earliest sports memories, 94, 95 championships. Dad took me to games. I mean, that's where really like my love of sports is fomented, and, and I kind of grew to be a sports fan and eventually went on to work in the field or whatever. But you wrote uh, about the possibility at the end of the year of a Rockets-Spurs matchup, which I would love. I think it would be a great yeah. matchup. And you talked about James Harden versus Kawhi Leonard, two dual superstars, one offensive, one defensive. It'd be a great matchup, different styles of play, so forth and so on. Uh, when you're looking at James Harden and Kawhi Leonard, is James Harden better at offense than Kawhi Leonard is at defense? Because I think it's harder to quantify defense. I wonder if Kawhi Leonard might not be as good on the defensive end as James Harden is on the offensive end. Yeah, he's probably not. J- J- James Harden is maybe the best offensive player in the league. I think people would try to put Durant above him. But I don't think I don't think Durant has as many tricks as James Harden does. Uh, when you flip that with Kawhi, I can't say for certain he's the best defender. And even if he is, I don't think it, it impacts the game as much as a really good offensive player does. So I would I would put him I would put Harden a little bit above Kawhi. Yeah. I would have to as well. Where where, where does Harden rank overall? Because I, mean, I think that there's no more valuable offensive weapon in the NBA. I think he's kind of proven that, and certainly the way he's winning games uh, has helped that as well. What, what you know, in terms of a player you absolutely would want to have at this point, maybe if you build your franchise or what have you. Well, where does he see top three, top four, top five? <laughs> you know, you're you're asking me that, and I don't want I don't want him on my team. But when I just look at <laughs> when I look at the NBA, I don't think you can argue that he's not. A top five. He's probably top four in the whole entire NBA as far as just playing basketball goes. I can't. I can't pick more than three or four people better than James Harden right now. He's incredible. There's no denying that he's a fantastic basketball player, and he will help your team win. He'll help your team get to the second round and oh, then God. fall apart. That's what I think. <laughs> well, and yet, and there's the, there's the butt in there. You don't want him on your team. Is it just the aesthetics? What is it that's so displeasing about James Harden to you if you were a, a fictional GM? Oh, it's a, it's it's not anything. It's not a smart decision I'm making. It's just that he's not on the Spurs. He's not my guy. It's the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. If I was a Rockets fan, I would love him to death, but I'm not, so I don't. It's as simple as that. It's as simple. It's as simple as I'd be a horrible GM because I would never. I would only trade guys on my team for other guys on my team. I would just, well, let's just put Kawhi. At, a, at, at point guard, we'll just move the pieces. Like, I'm not going to trade with another team because those are my guys. <laughs> I was I was reading, I think it was in October, you wrote up uh, kind of a, a humorous uh, intersection of, of uh, what, a character? Um, what did you call it? Character... Uh, uh, I don't remember. It was Venn diagrams of characters in the NBA. You kind of took the ten superstars and overlapped them there, and, and some of them were pretty accurate. You, you, with Harden, you had uh, bearded and deceptive. It was sort of a Venn diagram overlapping there, and that was a while ago. Has there been anything during this season that is uh, that has uh, caused you to reevaluate that <laughs> uh, that evaluation of yours? No, he's still bearded and he's still deceptive, and I mean deceptive in a good way. I don't mean like he's a bad like a villain. I mean he tricks you into doing things that he wants you to do while you're trying to guard him. That's sort of deceptive. 
Sure, sure, sure. But the the beard is more I take issue with. It's certainly not uh, <laughs> anything to do with his basketball talent, but it is a big part of his brand, I suppose, there. Um, but you talked about Harden and Curry as well, and I think you, you said you root against them, or at least you sports dislike them. I can't remember the exact term you used, but something about them just kind of made your skin crawl. You didn't really enjoy them. I, obviously, Harden's on my team, the team I root for, so I have certain kind of feelings about him. Uh, but I feel exactly the same way about Curry, and it, it's weird to me that people seem to adore him so much, the people that do, because something about him just gets under my skin, and even though he seems to be a decent stand-up guy, seems to love his kids, see, all these things that you would want in athletes, something about him just rubs me the wrong way. I wonder, what do you think it is about those players that gets to people like us that, that have these weird feelings about players? That it's, it's the same thing we've been talking about. That's just not your guy. If he was on the Rockets, you would love him. And, and the thing of it is, I don't dislike Curry. I only dislike Steph Curry when they're playing the Spurs. All the rest of the time, I like him. Like it's just it's just how it how it works when they play Spurs. I hate him. I can't stand him. I hate his face. I hate everything about him. I hate when he shoots it and turns around early. <laughs> um, but when he plays another team and he does it, it's fantastic and it's super exciting. Uh, that's all it is. That's that's really all it is. It's just not your guy. So if you had a, a favorite player of all time, I would imagine it would be Tim Duncan, right? Yeah, if I'm if I'm putting them in order, he would be my favorite basketball player. of of all time he wasn't the first person i ever fell in love with i think that's reggie miller if we're picking like basketball loves um but if i'm picking my number ones then yeah i gotta put him first on my list we've just been through so much together I see. I feel the exact same way about Hakeem. Even playing the same position and kind of overlapping somewhat, I had those same thoughts. I, honestly, if if you were to ask me straight up, uh, and I, you know, I would say Hakeem's the best player. I take Hakeem over Michael Jordan uh, in terms of uh, what he was able to do. I know I'm crazy. Yeah. That's what it is to be a sports fan. That's what it is to, to love these things so much. But uh, but you talk a lot about your kids, and I, you were actually at the uh, the Knicks game where Harden went for 53, 16, and 17. I was there too. Um, great game, I think. And, and your kids, I think, commented on the nachos. I believe is it, is it kind of a struggle? getting kids into sports is that a, is that a frustrating thing that they don't relate uh, on the same level that other sports fans do yet uh no nah, you know it doesn't bother, bother me because i'm not trying to like push them into anything i didn't even know they were going to like basketball they they hated playing they played like they played soccer they played basketball they played they, they went through like the cycle of trying all the sports to see what they like and they just super weren't into the competition part um but yeah we got a basketball goal i put it up front they played on it for like a day and then that was it. Maybe like six or seven months went by. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what, what happened. I think they played NBA jam nah. and they really, they figured the game out and they started learning about the people. And then they wanted to try doing the moves themselves. So then they started going outside every day and shooting. And, uh, this happened over like a six month, seven month period where all of a sudden all they were talking about was basketball. All they wanted to do was play basketball. So I, I think it just, it happens when you're when you're not looking, when you're not watching them. So no, nah, I don't worry too much about it, like, about whether or not they like the game or don't like the game. Like that, that'll fall on them. They'll figure it out eventually. That that playing video games really does kind of change things. I played NBA 2K a lot, and that took my fandom and knowledge of the game too to like a whole new level. Obsession, I think some would call it, but uh, but it does certainly make a difference. So you know, one thing we talk about on the show sometimes, you know, it's a Houston-based show. Obviously, I'm from Houston. We're all from Houston on this show, and we love Houston. But but I wonder if there. You know, you, you've lived in San Antonio, you've lived in Houston. Is there like a character or something that is emblematic of the city of Houston that you've discovered as an outsider kind of coming in that you say, okay, this really sums up what Houston is all about? 
No, you know, the, I think I don't ever think about Houston on its own terms. I'm always thinking about it compared to San Antonio. So if you're asking me about its character, to me, Houston moves way faster than San Antonio does. Houston's a much, a much cooler city. They get things first. Like the songs that come out in Houston that are popular, they'll, they'll get to San Antonio in like eight weeks, and then they'll start doing everything down there. Uh, so I think that's that's usually what I think about whenever I'm comparing the city. Houston is more exciting. San Antonio is a little, it's slower. It it feels more like a country city for some reason, even though I know it's gigantic. It's got millions of people in it. It just feels, it feels smaller and it feels more accessible. I know there's somebody in Houston who's worth like $7 billion walking around somewhere. And I don't know that there's a person like that in San Antonio. So I think those sorts of things move the dial a little bit for me. I think it's interesting you talk about Houston uh, songs dropping here and going and going elsewhere to, to San Antonio and so forth. You, you know a lot about rap, obviously. I know nothing about rap, literally nothing, but I feel like that's a, a character failing on my part. I feel like I ought to be more informed because it's a big part of the culture, and it seems like there's probably a lot to love there that I haven't discovered yet, uh, and it's really just for a lack of trying. But but with the Houston scene particularly, since we are a Houston podcast, are there do you know of underground acts or guys that, that maybe haven't hit it big yet that people really need to be locked into and listening to and discovering? Yeah, there are a bunch of a bunch of underground guys who are doing really interesting things. That's what I before I started at like Grantland or the Ring or whatever. I was working in the Houston Press, and I, I was there for three, four years, something like that, covering local music and all this stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was great. There are a lot of guys. Like, uh, I'm going to say a bunch of names, and they're not going to mean anything to you, but they're out there doing cool things. There's a guy named Dobeezy. There's a guy named Doe Man. There's a there are other non-dough-based rappers <laughs> doing things. There, I mean, there's just a, a, a whole whole bunch of them: D'Lo and Propane and Less, and they like again, they don't mean anything when I'm saying them to you, but they're out there and they're, yeah, they're. There are a bunch of cool people doing cool stuff in Houston, which is another thing I like about it. Is Houston a significant like city within the rap landscape? Because I always hear about the two coasts and so forth, but also I seem to hear about the Houston rap scene from time to time as well. Is it, is it significant or important? Yeah, it's incredibly important. Um, ever since they had the big burst back in 2004, around that time, like it changed rap forever when they did that. And, that, and that's not just me being... Um, silly or extravagant like it literally they're doing things in music now that Houston started they're like still picking pieces from it Um, that's actually a big point of contention among a lot of the rappers in Houston or outside of Houston they're like watching other people take stuff that they've done and become popular off of it and it's a weird thing but yeah Houston is incredibly important in the shape of rap for like the last 12-13 years so when you write and again we're big fans of, of the way you write. I think you do things differently than a lot of sports writers. I think you have a lot of freedom at the Ringer and at Grantland, of course. Uh, and then I, I'm not familiar with the work from the Houston Press, but but it seems like you have sort of a unique ability to get to the heart of the matter, whether you're writing about movies, sports, uh, life, and to just kind of hone in on the element of a situation or scenario that resonates. And it's what makes your work fun to read and, and as impactful as it is. Uh, and it's like I said, it's kind of uncommon. Uh, is it as simple as concentrating on the moments or issues that resonate with you and then communicating those? How do you find like quote unquote the story within the larger scope of game or film or whatever uh yeah i think that's all it is i just you know what stood out to me uh, and then i just write about that uh, because if it stood out to me i'm sure it stood out to other people 
there's no magic tricks or anything like that. It's just a matter of putting those ideas out there for other people to see. Uh, you know, if you, I don't know if you, you've ever been watching the game and you'll notice like a little thing happened in the corner, like a guy slapped another guy in the butt in a weird way and you see it and you're like, Oh, that was, that was, that was weird. <laughs> and before that, like, there's no way to talk about it, but now you can take a picture of it and post it on Twitter. And then there are like a hundred thousand other people who saw that exact same moment and they get excited because you noticed it too. It's the same thing here. You're watching the game, you're noticing one particular moment or, and you just get excited. So when you're writing, I do the, I try to do that same thing. Like what jumped out at me? Okay, cool. Then let's only talk about that. And there you go. So, again, your Twitter following is pretty huge, by the way, and, and you're a very good Twitter follower. Certainly drop that handle here at the end of the interview so uh, listeners can follow you. But but you got the uh, the book out, the Rap Yearbook, which I have not bought yet. I absolutely am going to. Uh, I've, I'm excited to, to get into it. It may be my way to get into rap. You may be the one that converts me into being a rap lover 20 years down the road. I will thank Shea Serrano for being the guy that changed my life. We'll see. I'll certainly buy the book either way. But, um, but what... How, what's the impact been? It seems like you're kind of a, uh, I don't want to say cult celebrity because that's almost dismissive, but it seems to have brought you a lot of attention, particularly on social media with people responding to it. What's the fallout been like from that book? And have you, uh, has it been uh, a way to get into uh, conversations with rappers and, and artists that you find interesting? You know, if you would have told me when you emailed me about this podcast that you had not bought the book, I would not. You should have told me that beforehand because then I would have oh, not taken this phone I know. Off. That's why I didn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, the, the, I guess the fallout or the result of the book being so successful has been uh, almost like an instant legitimacy is, is, is what comes along with it. So now any, I know anytime I say a thing or tweet a thing, like it has a little more heft to it because, oh, you're the guy who wrote a best-selling book about rap music. You must know about rap music is what happens. Uh, and I think that's really the main thing. Once you get the New York Times bestseller tag by your name, like a lot of shit happens. A lot of stuff opens up for you, other possibility. All of a sudden, I'm starting to get, uh, when the book came out and, the, and we got on the list, now like universities or whatever are asking me to come speak at their events. Um, you know, like I just, just been the last two weeks, like three or four different schools have asked me to come by and talk because they're doing hip hop classes or, or whatever. <clears throat> so stuff like that happens. Um, and then a lot of the success of the book came through Twitter. So I started getting a bunch of calls or whatever from businesses asking me to come talk to their employees about doing creative things on the internet and blah, 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 blah. Um, so yeah, it just gives you, it gives you a little more, your name rings out a little bit more than it did beforehand. So thank goodness for that. So the way to make it then is to, is to write a book is what I'm hearing. Cause I'm, I'm at an interesting point where I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to this scene and so forth. I'm wondering how to advance yeah, from you. The solution is to write a book. <laughs> yeah. You just sort of accident <laughs> your way into everything. That's what Hardly I've been doing replicable, for like but, uh... the last five years. <laughs> Well, Shay, I really appreciate your time, man. Uh, and uh, obviously, we would recommend all of our listeners follow you on Twitter, uh, like a lot of people already do, 115,000 people. Uh, if you could, drop your Twitter handle for us and tell us how the listeners can find you. That's just my name, at Shay Serrano, and that's how you find me. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We, we are glad to have you in the city of Houston, even though you haven't adopted the Rockets as your, as your new <laughs> team, and you never will. And we, uh, we love following your work, man, and we're looking forward to more of it. All right, man. Appreciate you.
Closing time. We just had two great guests on episode 78 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to both John McClain and Shay Serrano for joining us on the show. And uh, Kevin, we both had the opportunity to talk with John, the general. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had him on, what, five, six, seven times. Uh, but we discussed kind of the needs that the Texans had, kind of where they were going to look at the draft. But one of the things that we didn't discuss was this quote from Adrian Peterson suggesting that he was interested in playing for the Texans if they couldn't get a contract negotiation worked out in Minnesota. I'm curious with the primary focus of, and I'll open this up to everybody, with the primary focus in the offseason being the quarterback position, would Adrian Peterson help out, or is this even a necessary move for the Texans? It's interesting that he uh, voluntarily dropped their name. He did so in a list of a couple other teams, including like Tampa Bay, I think was one of them. And uh, he, he said that his primary goal is to remain in Minnesota. So, you know, read that for what it is. But the fact that he's naming other teams makes me think that it's not working out in Minnesota. He may become available. It's a question of price. He's old, but he has shown uh, a remarkable uh, ability to transcend age in the way that some players do. Like, age does not seem to apply to him the way it does to a typical running back. So I think it's an intriguing proposition i would certainly like the star power and the attention that adrian Peterson would bring with him so with that bobbing there is known for running essentially a clean organization he doesn't have any guys with off field issues i mean he kicks guys off for smoking pot um idiot adrian peterson is a guy that a few years ago was suspended for a season for child abuse do the Texans even consider this? Well, yeah, I, as far as what Bob McNair does or does not do, I've never met the man. I have no clue what's in his head or whatever. But in terms of what I think they ought to do, I think he showed all the things. We talked about Manziel earlier. Peterson showed me all the things that I thought. He said, look, this is the way I was raised in East Texas. My parents were raised in East Texas. I spent a lot of summers there in Tyler, Texas. I know how children are disciplined out there. I truly believe that, A, he didn't really realize what he was doing, and, B, when people sort of pointed out to him, he did show me all the things I wanted to see about seeing the error of his ways. So I don't have the same problems. I don't really consider that an off-the-field issue, or like an ongoing one. I, I, it's resolved for me, and I would not hate to see. I would root for Adrian Peterson. Yeah, Adrian Peterson is not on the same level as some other players who have had off-the-field issues, you know, with domestic violence and, you know, harder drugs and so forth. Um, I think it's interesting. He does have a lot of roots in the Houston area, and he lives in the Woodlands, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm correct. And so, I, you know, he threw out some other names there, but if, if he was going to move out of Minnesota, if things aren't working out for him this next season, I could definitely see him coming down here, hopefully invigorating our offense, which will be much different next year with Bill O'Brien taking over um, play calling. So I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Whatever happens at the quarterback position, th- there's not a currently established good quarterback that we have. So having a strong running game would be key. I, I kind of like that idea. But they don't have a strong offensive line right now. And I think that's what you need. I think that's why you look at, you know, uh, Ezekiel Elliott up there in, in Dallas. He was the NFL rushing leader this year because of that offensive line. Texans have holes there, especially on the right side. Uh, Dwayne Brown's getting old on the left side. Uh, you know, they're going to have a new center next year because obviously the guy that they drafted was injured this past year. So does Adrian want, does Peterson want to play behind that makeshift offensive line? Uh, you know, Time will tell, but the focus needs to be at quarterback, and I think that's one of the things that John McLean uh, alluded to on on this week's show. But uh, Shea Serrano, the ringer, another great guest. Yeah, and we're not afraid to say how great our guests are. Uh, that's just kind of what we bring to you here. But yeah, he, he got on to me a little bit. I am buying his book today. You guys should all buy it as well. You should buy multiple copies of it, The Rap Yearbook by Shea Serrano, very well regarded, and uh, certainly has gotten him into some interesting situations rap-wise. And I'm going to check out those Houston rappers. I need to go back and listen to that list of names, but, uh, but he's got me interested in the Houston rap scene here. So, so there's some Shea Super Bowl parties coming up here in a few weeks, and I believe there are a bunch of Houston rappers 
hosting some Super Bowl parties. So maybe Weirdly, I have not been maybe, invited. Maybe you should check those out. <laughs> I don't know. Get a get a credential or something. <laughs> I don't know. Can we? Can we? Are we a reputable media organization yet? Uh, we're a big deal, people. Know okay, us. we're a big deal. Yeah. We have other podcasts wanting to join us. So. <laughs> I was going to say, if if, uh, if you haven't gotten it, Bunby's Rap Coloring and Activity Book um, is... Uh, yes. Serrano Illustrated, though. Yes, absolutely. I I, uh, I have 10 copies at home. I, <laughs> I call in all of them. All right. I, I'm curious, do you? Because I, I didn't know that you were a Dancing with the Stars fan, but do you have these coloring books? It's a type of avant-garde therapy that Jeremy You have a lot of depth. Yeah, you, you know, I, I have a double We're learning a lot about Jeremy I know, right? You, you're really going deep down the, the rabbit hole here. Yeah, no, I... Uh, what um, are your thoughts on The Bachelor? Oh God! <laughs> so many thoughts. Where do so I start? Many, exactly. <laughs> Does that have to do with that lead pipe treatment you got in high school? Yeah. <laughs> it happened once. I woke up a different man. Um, it's been a rough life ever since. So, anyways, uh, thanks to our two great guests for joining us on this week's show, uh, John McClain and Chase Serrano. And also, if you can uh, check out John McClain's event this Wednesday night at the Houstonian, uh, it's going to have a few Hall of Famers there. You can check out uh, our website. We'll provide the link for that as well. But if you want to follow our content throughout the week, just search Weekly Brewcast on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. We post each new episode there every Sunday night, Monday morning, and uh, we highly recommend that you go and check that out. But, guys, it's been a lot of fun this week. Hunter, we definitely enjoyed having you back at the We Dessert Studio. And uh, next week, we will have our Super Bowl preview. Can't wait. Thank you so much for having me, as always, man. It's great. And go ahead and uh, check Hunter out Sunday nights on KPRC at what time? It'll be sometime between 11.30 p.m., 12.30 a.m. Uh, it's on your local NBC affiliate. It's, uh, it's called uh, Sports Nation. Make sure to check them out on Sports Nation, also over at cron.com. And as I understand, you're working on something uh, kind of cool right now. We can't now. talk about it. Don't we, tell We can't? Shh, okay. Shh, shh. It's so secretive. But you can follow him on Twitter. What's your Twitter? Twitter is Hunter Atkins 35 Make sure to follow him on Twitter. And also, we've got to plug Kevin at KMichaelCook, at FiestaBero8, and at Staten. Do you know how unimportant I feel with just 800 followers? It's it's remarkable. Do it, it would make my life so much better if just even like, I don't know, three or 400 of these listeners would go follow me today, right now on Twitter. Or of John McClain's 126,000. Yeah, just exactly. Like, if he could just give you 1,000. I, I know, think just so That easy. would be nice of him to do that. You don't even have to read it or like it or retweet <laughs> anything. Just just give me the numbers. It does make me feel very empowered, though, that like I could unfollow you. I know. really hurt you. We I know. Should you all could, do you should negotiate. You're in a you position of leverage here. <laughs> But guys, it's been great as always. Again, thanks to both John and Shay for joining us. And on behalf of my co-host this week and our guests, my name is Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember this week, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 